Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. The great Apostle Paul wrote these words in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished sin and death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Emin is with you as always. So glad once again to be with you as we tackle the gospels, as we're looking at the life and teachings of Jesus in chronological order. So if you've missed any previous podcast, go to standstrongministries.org, click on podcast. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes. All my study notes are there for your enjoyment. And please, uh, pass them along. And as always, if you have any questions concerning the content that we're discussing here on the podcast or any apologetical, uh, theological questions you might have, info at standstrawministries.org is the email that you can reach us. I would be honored not only to pray for your prayer requests, but to answer any questions that you might have. So today's podcast, we're now going to be looking at what Jesus did following the greatest sermon ever told. And this is going to be in Matthew chapter 8, 5 through 13. And the cross-referencing is Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. So this is podcast 43, and the title is Pleading with Jesus. Now, this new installment of Jesus' ministry right after he preaches the Sermon on the Mount is awesome because one is Jesus goes back to his hometown and that gives us insight about Jesus because with all the challenges in his life, yes, he's God in the flesh, but remember, he's also fully human. And so Jesus would often go back to Capernaum to find rest, to get restored, to see his family, to be around people that he is familiar with. It also gave time for uh, his disciples to be reunited with family and friends as well. So that's a great insight that we do get as we're going through the life of Jesus, that he would oftentimes go back to Capernaum to find rest. So where we pick things up today, we will see that taking place with Jesus. Now, upon him coming back to Capernaum, he's greeted by a Jewish elder, or excuse me, by some Jewish elders uh, who are representing a Roman centurion about his servant who's dying. And so he's requesting that Jesus you know, heals his servant. And then after Jesus does that, he then encounters a widow from the city of Nine. Some people pronounce it Nain. And there Jesus resurrects her son. Now, these two encounters that we're going to be looking at today, they point to one critical thing, and that is that Jesus has power over death. That's why I started the podcast looking at 2 Timothy 1.10, because through Christ, who defeated, who abolished, Paul says, Death gives us immortality in return. So at this stage of Jesus' life, he has yet to resurrect someone, but we're going to see him doing that today. So let's jump right in to the first encounter with Jesus and the centurion. Now, give you a heads up, there are two passages of scriptures in the Synoptic Gospels. One is in Matthew chapter 8, 5 through 13, and Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, that lay out this encounter between Jesus and the centurion. Now, I want to say this as we dive right in. This is a very important passage of scripture, obviously in one sense because it it's the inspired word of God, but in another because this is the first and only reference where Jesus is marveled. He marvels over the faith of this centurion. 
And I have to tell you, my friends, just to give you a, a little deeper insight, as I was exploring through this particular passage, preparing for the podcast, and have I, as I have many times preached on this passage of Scripture, I can say one thing. I do not have the faith like the centurion. I've always just stood in awe of this man's faith and in his ability to understand who Jesus is because in his condition, with his status, with his office that he held as a centurion and being a Gentile, there's really no rhyme or reason as to why he knew so much about Jesus being the Messiah. We're going to get into that in a minute. But I just want to give you a heads up because as I was going through this again, my prayer was, God, I want you to marvel at my faith. And so as we go through this encounter, and as we look at the other one with the widow, I do want to just prepare our hearts and say, God, give us faith. Give us a stronger faith. Give us an extraordinary faith. Let's don't just have like faith in Jesus that he's Savior, but go far beyond that and say, Lord, if you dwell within me, if you have defeated sin and death in my life, if my life is in your hands and I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, God, I want to do incredible things for you. I want to come before your presence and I want to plead with you that you would use me for your glory. That's what I'm talking about. This isn't just, hey, that's a great encounter, man. That's cool what Jesus did for this man. We oftentimes do that. So as we jump in, I want us just to be blown away with this encountership and say, Lord, give me this same faith that this centurion had. All right, man. So I hope you're fired up as I'm fired up. So let's jump right into Matthew chapter eight and Luke chapter seven. Now to give you a heads up, these two accounts, there's some uh, similarities, obviously, and details that they both mention. And there's other things that Matthew mentions that Luke doesn't. And so on my notes, as I always do, anytime that there we come to a passage of scripture that many of the writers of the Gospels have put down, I parallel them. I put them side by side and I color code them so you can see uh, the differences and the similarities. And what this does actually, again, they're not contradicting one another. It's just when you when you take all of the accounts and the perspectives that Matthew and Luke and Mark and John all have, and you put them together, you and I have a a bigger picture, a more clear understanding of what occurred. So I'm going to be jumping around so you can check out my notes if it's a little confusing. So I apologize ahead of time, but my whole purpose and intent is to give you and I more insight into these accounts because we oftentimes just, as we're reading through the Gospels, one, we're not reading them in chronological order, so we don't really understand how things are building uh, building up, you know, the momentum that Jesus is having in the ministry. This explains why he did this because what he just came from, et cetera, et cetera. But also sometimes we just read the one account and not get more insight by reading the other accounts from the other gospels. So in Matthew chapter eight, five through 13, Luke seven, one through 10 is where we're going to be looking at the first encounter. So let's jump right here. I'm going to start in Luke and then jump back a couple times in the gospel of Matthew. So Luke chapter seven, verse one says, after he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now jumping to Matthew eight, it says, when he entered Capernaum, a satyrian came forward to him, appealing to him. Now jumping back to Luke seven it says, now as a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Matthew says that the servant was lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And so back in Luke 7, verse 3, it says, When the satyrian heard about Jesus, he sent 
to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, a centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set, set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and he turned to the crowd that followed him and he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now, when we jump back to Matthew's account in verse 11 of chapter 8, it says, Jesus says, I truly tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Then in verse 11 says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so there is a lot here. So let's jump right into it. And let's look at Matthew 8, 5 through 6 and Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. So as I mentioned earlier, Jesus enters back into Capernaum here, which is a very important city to him. Why? Because he was born and raised there. This is where Jesus also based his ministry in Galilee. We see that in Luke chapter 4, verse 31. Now, as he returns back home to Capernaum, uh, this individual comes forward appealing to him. Now, we we have, it seems on the surface, two conflicting things between Matthew 8, 5, that says a centurion came forward appealing to Jesus, as I mentioned, and Luke 7, 3, where it says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews. So which is it? Did the centurion come to Jesus personally, directly, or was it a group of Jewish elders? So as I said, this may seem contradictory, but it isn't. Let me, let me explain. See, Matthew often abbreviates the story, and therefore he leaves out some details. So what Matthew simply does is he just focuses on the message coming from the centurion, while Luke mentions that the message came from the Jewish elders on his behalf. Now, from both Matthew and Luke's account, the Roman centurion, the man who's in charge, is one who's delivering the message. So in that culture, that was very important. So even though the Jewish elders came on behalf of the Roman centurion, it's as though the Roman centurion was there because he's the one with the authority. It's coming from his mouth. So that's what, you know, when you're looking at that, oftentimes people will use that as a contradiction when in fact it really isn't. You just have to look at the context and understand the culture and what Matthew and Luke are both trying to convey and they're conveying the same thing. Now let's jump to this phrase here, appealing to him. Now the centurion, as we're told, pleads through the Jewish elders with great urgency. Now this kind of display or this type of request would have been looked down upon by the people. This was a very shameful act. You cannot have in that culture at that time a high-ranking Roman officer in the imperial forces who's seeking out a poor Jewish rabbi and asking and pleading, okay? It's like embarrassing. He's so desperate that he's begging with his with these Jewish elders who are representing, obviously not just the Jewish people, but God in the synagogue. They're coming on behalf of a Roman official, okay? So this act right here from the very beginning is a very shameful act in that culture. But guess what? Which leads to the whole faith of this man, which goes back to what I was saying to you about earlier. This man didn't care. He cared about one thing, and that is to get Jesus' attention 
and get him to agree to heal his servant. So he was willing to do anything. He didn't care what people thought about him, which gives us insight into why Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. He did not care about what people thought in society. He was not coming to Jesus based on certain expectations. He did not come to Jesus based on the approval of the higher society in that day. He just went to Jesus. And the Bible says here in Luke 7 verse 4 that they pleaded earnestly. And here's what's interesting because when the Jewish elders on behalf of the centurion come to Jesus, they say, he is worthy, Lord. This man is worthy. He loves our nation. He's helped build our synagogue. So whatever he's asking you to do, can you just please honor that because he's worthy now? As we have seen throughout the course of scriptures, you've read the gospel accounts as I've read the gospel accounts as you and I see the teachings of the early apostles and the church, particularly when you look at uh, Ephesians chapter two, that there's nothing good in us. There's nothing that you and I can do in order to be saved. We know the rich young ruler, you know, he thought he kept the law, but Jesus says, the one thing you have not done is go sell your possessions and then come follow me. And he left. Greatly, the Bible says, sorrowful because he had, he had much wealth. So he was not willing to give up the riches of the world uh, to follow after Jesus. And so here the Jewish elders are, are basing it off of good works, saying, hey, this man is deserving because of all the nice things that he has done for us. So please, Jesus, can you just, you know, uh, answer his request. Can you do what he's asked of you? But as we're going to see, that's not why Jesus does it. Jesus doesn't respond to the request because he's a nice guy, because he's been kind to the Jews. Another insight about this centurion is under Roman law, a master had a right to kill his slave if he was injured or he was too sick. If he was on the verge of death, they had a right to kill that slave. But see what 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 the centurion is doing instead this Gentile, is he's showing respect and honor, not, not, not just to the Jewish people in general, but to a lowly servant. And see, that's what grabs the attention of Jesus. I told you in Matthew 8, 6, it says that his servant was lying paralyzed, suffering terribly. In Luke 7, 2, that this servant was so sick, he was, that he was at the point of death, and this man highly valued him. That word valued is that he loved him. But let me take it a step further and give you some insight into this servant's life. The language that's used to describe this slave, this servant in Matthew, is the Greek word paeus. That literally means boy. And when you look at the reference in Luke, doulos, this slave, the reference for slave, it suggests that this was a young slave child. So here we have not just a young servant, we have a child who is a servant of this centurion, who's in severe pain. And if he does not get help, if he does not receive a miracle, he will die. So see, that puts in perspective. Jesus was not motivated to go to this man's home because he loves the nation of the Jewish, uh, of the Jewish people because he built the synagogue. That's great. But he's going because he sees the man's great faith and also his great love. Now in Matthew 8, 7, Luke 7, 6, we see the heart of Jesus that responds when he receives this type of pleading. He says, I will come and heal him. And so Jesus goes. So Jesus has this willingness. And then in Matthew chapter 8, 8 through 11, in Luke 7, 6 through 8, we see the faith of the centurion. 
when he, Jesus is coming now to his home, which was which was the, the centurion, of course, was not expecting. He was expecting in faith that Jesus would heal his servant, but he was not expecting for him to come under his roof. Now, here's why. And this gives you some more insight about the centurion. This, this centurion, he believed that salvation was of the Jews. I believe that's clear in the context of scripture that we have before us. And the reason why, he wasn't being rude, the reason why he didn't want Jesus to come under his roof was because for a Jewish man, particularly a rabbi, to come into a house of a Gentile, that would cause Jesus to become ceremonially unclean. We see this in Acts chapter 10, verse 28. But of course, Jesus in his great love, we see he takes him up on this invitation. He shows great love and compassion, which is so amazing to, I'm sure, not just to the centurion, but as the disciples are going, they're probably intimidated, thinking, oh my gosh, you know, what are we going to do? Jesus, you're going to go see this, this high power uh, a Roman officer, you know, and why are you taking your time to go heal his servant? You know, I mean, he has a right according to the law uh, to dispose of him, but you're going out of your way to do this. We're at Capernaum. We want to see family. We want to see friends. We want to relax. We want to hang out. We want to discuss maybe a little bit about your summer on the mountain. We have a little confusion, a little debate going on, whatever. But instead they're following Jesus to go to this centurion's home and possibly become ceremonially unclean as a result of it. So this is probably blowing their minds, but again, it just speaks to Jesus' great love. Now notice in Luke 7, verse 7, the centurion says, hey, Lord, you don't have to come to my house. Just say the word and let my servant be healed. That shows great faith, my friends. That's why I love this encountership because it just blows me away the insight that the centurion had, his humility, his faith, his determination. He doesn't demand See, that's another thing that's cool about this centurion. He doesn't demand or threaten Jesus by using his position of office. Neither does he tell Jesus how to heal his servant. He just says, let it be done, Lord. This centurion, my friends, he displays great faith by believing that even a spoken word, Jesus, I believe in your power so much that you don't have to be physically here. Just speak the word from afar and my servant will be healed. And that's why in Luke 7, verse 9, Jesus marvels at him. He says, not even in Israel have I found such faith. The knowledge, the respect, the faith that this centurion displayed in Jesus, man, my friends, is a kind of faith that you and I should every single day of our lives pray for. And when Jesus says, not even in Israel, guess what he was saying about the centurion? Which again, remember the shameful act of pleading before publicly? through Jewish elders on behalf of a Roman centurion to a poor rabbi, people looked at that and be like, oh my, what, what on earth are they doing? Shameful. How embarrassing is that? Well, Jesus saying to this centurion that I've not even found uh, this type of faith in all of Israel, what he was also including was the Jewish scriptures. What he's saying is even to the level of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's blasphemy. Okay, right then and there, People hearing that, the Jewish people hearing that was an insult beyond belief about their, the patriarchs. Now, this is the only time, as I mentioned, that Jesus in the Gospels marvels at someone's faith. So that's pretty spectacular. I, I, I just think that's incredible that in this encountership of all people, it's this centurion's faith that Jesus is marveled by. He's just blown away by this man's faith. Now, I think it's clear that the centurion believed that Jesus is a long-awaited Messiah. Now, many Jews, of course, believe this, but for this centurion to have this type of knowledge of the Jewish scriptures, 
It shows you that this man was very well studied. He had not just a great appreciation, as we know, about the Jewish people and helping them build a synagogue, but he was a learner as well. He didn't just build it and say, okay, I've done my duty like King Herod. He's saying, no, I'm invested because I believe in your religion. I believe in this long-awaited Messiah. So when Jesus comes on scene, he's putting two together. He's taking the Jewish scriptures, seeing what Jesus is doing to fulfill prophecy and he's saying this man is the messiah and you know what he's not a big shot guy i'm going to reach out to him because i my servant is in desperate need of healing and i believe there's only one person who's able to do this and that's the messiah that's jesus so he was not just a rabbi i believe in the centurion's mind i believe that he looked upon jesus and knew him to be god incarnate now uh, spurgeon wrote this in regards to this he says he seeks a cure but does not prescribe to the Lord how or where he shall work it. In fact, he does not put his request into words, but pleads the case and lets the sorrow speak. I think that's well said. Now, as we conclude this encountership, another thing that I want to give insight into is that phrase that Jesus gave in Matthew eight eleven: Many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What on earth is he saying there? Now, what Jesus is saying is that many in the Gentile community will one day come to a saving faith. So this faith that's been demonstrated by the centurion, this type of extraordinary faith, will one day be also prevalent among the Gentiles. We see that in Isaiah 49, that's prophetic, in Luke chapter 13, 28 through 29. Now, the healing of the servant, look, look at the power that comes. When Jesus says, go, let it be done for you. So he responds now to this faith and says, let it be done for you as you have believed. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus says, you came to me with faith, believing this to be the case. And so let it be done. The servant was healed, the Bible says, at that very moment. The moment Jesus did speak the word, and that, isn't that what the centurion said? If you just speak the word, and, it, and distance didn't matter, and time doesn't matter. When God speaks, it is done immediately, my friends. This miracle confirmed the centurion's belief that Jesus not only could, but that he would heal his servant, and he did. Could you imagine now how that changed that, that centurion's life? And we're, nothing else is mentioned about the centurion after this. But it just blows my mind to think this man has such great faith coming into this encountership with Jesus. And then after this healing, could you imagine how resourceful, how dynamic, how evangelistic this centurion was to the Gentile community? I, now, this is speculative, but I do believe that this man was probably used in a mighty way for God not only leading up to his death and resurrection, but even afterwards and starting the church. Now, here's the second and final encountership, Jesus and the mother's dead son. In Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, we read, Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nine, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the buyer and the bar barriers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and he began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole 
parts of Judea and all of the surrounding country. Well, what an incredible story that we have here in Luke chapter 7, and knowing that Luke is the only one that mentions this. So before we conclude this podcast, we look at this final encountership, let's just jump right into it and kind of get some insight into Jesus resurrecting this woman's son. Now, the first thing to mention is that Nan is a small town that was southeast of Nazareth. So where Jesus was coming from when he helped the centurion after the Sermon on the Mount when he was back in Capernaum, this was about a day's journey. Now, nowhere else in all of the Gospels is nine ever mentioned again. And let me just give you a little insight. I believe this is important because it speaks to Jesus' great love. He wasn't just hanging out with all the famous people and hanging out in Jerusalem. He was willing to go out of his way. And really, in the mind of Jesus, it was not out of his way, right? You and I, Jesus never has to go out of his way. It's not like a, a discomfort or an inconvenience for Jesus. He goes out of his way, a day's journey, to resurrect this widow's son. Now notice the disciples and the great crowd went with him. So no doubt, as we were told at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 28, 29, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And then he encounters the centurion. So crowds are following him. Remember, he's being mobbed by them. And this man died and he's being carried out. Now remember, we saw that with the centurion, if Jesus entered his house, they would become ceremonial and clean. Well, imagine touching a dead body. According to Numbers 5, 1 through 4, you touch a dead body, you become ceremonial and clean. You have to remove yourself until you're purified again. But once again, Jesus doesn't care about that. He comes to this crowd, this considerable crowd, which I think speaks to the impact that this woman and her son had on this community. Which, by the way, I think also speaks to why, in part, Jesus wanted to be there, not just to resurrect the man, but to see this community come together and to mourn with this woman. Because we're told in verse 13 that Jesus had such compassion on her. This widow, she was lost without her son. And Jesus has pity on her. The word compassion literally means the inner parts of his body uh, move within him. Jesus shows such great emotion and sympathy for this woman that he responds in verse 14 by coming towards them and saying, young man, I say to you, arise. You know, what's so crazy about this is that Jesus not only approaches a dead body, he doesn't care about becoming un, unclean, but he's talking to a dead person. You think about how crazy he probably looked. It's like, why are you talking to this man? He's dead. But we know that Jesus has the power to resurrect this man. So when he says to him, arise, as we saw earlier, when Jesus speaks the word at that instant, at that very moment, it happens. It doesn't take time, a little progress, gets a little bit better and a little bit better. No, when Jesus speaks, it happens. Romans 4, 17 says, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, See, that's what we're talking about. Just like when you go back to Genesis, when God spoke, it happened. When he said, let there be light, there was light. When he says, arise, that person will arise. So in response, of course, in verse 16, people say, this is a great prophet who's arisen among us. Jesus's ministry was closely reflecting that of Elijah. We see, if you go back in 1 Kings 17 and Matthew 16, 14, you'll see the parallels of that. And Jesus was coming in that spirit. He was fulfilling that work that John the Baptist paved, and many people forsook John the Baptist to be Elijah, and now they're confusing Jesus to be Elijah or John the Baptist, and we're going to see that continue through the course of Jesus' ministry. But in Isaiah 7, 14, 
The prophet did declare, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And these are the signs that Jesus is giving. In all of Judea and the surrounding country, we are told, they start hearing of these miracles. Even the Jewish leaders are hearing about this. That Jesus is not only casting demons out, healing people of their sickness, helping a servant child who's on the verge of death, but he's also resurrecting people back from the dead. My friends, nothing like that was ever happening until Jesus comes on scene. They've been waiting for this. Elijah was the closest person that they can think of. And so you can see the excitement, but also the confusion. And in addition, the frustration that the religious leaders have over this. But as I conclude this podcast, when we look back at the centurion, look back at this widow, this, this woman that Jesus had such great compassion over and how uh, the man, the centurion man pleaded with Jesus. I want to just encourage you, my friend, as I was encouraged going through this particular study of how we approach Jesus and how we plead with him. Don't give up. I think that's the, the thing that I just over and over and over and over again tell my family. I tell my friends and I'm telling you, my friends here on this podcast, don't give up. Don't care what people think. Come before God, plead before him, plead your case. Don't come, obviously, with, with pride or hypocrisy, as we learn in the Sermon on the Mount. We don't come to pray about showboating how awesome we are. We come in humility. We come expecting things because we know our great God delivers. There's nothing too great or too impossible for Him. He is the ultimate. He is the greatest. He is infinite in His wisdom and His goodness. So when you and I take a passage like we did today, let's not overlook and just think, oh, that's pretty cool, move on. What kind of miracles are you praying over right now that God would do in your life? Put that in perspective, my friends. Don't underestimate what God can do through you and in you. And make sure, as always, that you continue to lay your request before his presence and expect great things to come as a result. I love you, my friends, and I will see you on the next podcast. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.